I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Spider plants, ghost peppers, Dracula orchids, deadly nightshade. You know, I'm feeling a bit spooked this week. Welcome to Gardening with the RHS and our Halloween special. I've seen pumpkins appearing in shops recently and I do love the tradition of carving them. I grow my own pumpkins, a variety called Rouge Vif de Tompe. And it's quite tasty. I don't mind people misusing vegetables and carving them, but I do object to them being wasted afterwards. Don't throw them in the bin, either compost them or make tasty soup out of them. Brush them with olive oil, bake them in the oven. Scrumptious. The name jack-o'-lantern actually comes from the phenomenon of a light flickering over peat bogs and marshy areas called will-of-the-wisp or jack-o'-lantern in English folklore. Quite an image. But pumpkins aside... This week I thought it would be fun to hear about other plants that fit a Halloween theme. Parasitic plants. Dr Chris Thorogood from the University of Oxford is passionate about them. So a parasitic plant is a plant that steals its food from other plants. Sometimes it taps into the roots. Sometimes it plugs itself into the stems. But either way, it takes its food from another plant. So it's a pilfering plant, or a, a sort of vampire, if you will, that sucks the sap out of other plants. So parasitic plants have evolved various means of siphoning off food from their host plants. Some of them, they strangle them, they lasso their victims and wrap their stems around them and then plug into them and, and draw off nutrients. Some of them attach to the roots. And so you can't really see what's going on underground. And then they send up their strange scaly inflorescences, their flowering spikes. And these parasitic plants have evolved 12 times across the plant's kingdom, across the flowering plants, I should say. And some of them are hemiparasites, like mistletoes that have green leaves. And others, we call these hollow parasites. These are the ones that lack chlorophyll. And these are particularly gruesome or <laughs> menacing looking plants that I think really challenge our perception of what a plant even is. We think of plants as being green and leafy, and these plants are, are neither of those things. 
And then there are four examples of plants that have evolved to live inside other plants. They're called endophytic. So these are plants living within plants. They're really, really unusual. And one that our listeners may be familiar with is the largest flower in the world called Rafflesia that grows in Southeast Asia. And this is indeed a pilfering parasitic plant that lives inside the tissues of its host, in this case, a tropical member of the grapevine family, a tetrastigma. And then it erupts through the surface of the rainforest floor with these giant cabbage-like flower buds that then unfurl into these extraordinary gigantic flowers. So these parasitic plants, they look and behave in a very unusual way and quite distinct from other plants. Parasitic plants have a reputation for being difficult to grow and they are a bit choosy. They tend to like particular host plants, so they won't just grow on anything. Perhaps one of the easier plants to grow at home is a mistletoe. And if you have um, a sprig of mistletoe in the festive season, rather than throwing it away, if you actually press the seeds out of the berries onto the bark of a suitable tree, a good choice might be an apple tree, which many people have in their gardens. Quite often, it will actually germinate. So I've done this a few times. It's not too difficult. I'd recommend doing several because they often, some of them fail. But if you do about four or five and and wait for them to develop, you might be lucky enough to get a little mistletoe bush on your apple tree. You probably wouldn't want too many if it's a small tree. Then again, it's not going to do the tree too much harm as long as you sort of keep an eye on it and you don't let it get absolutely festooned in mistletoe. But I've grown them without any trouble. But they're very, very slow. So you can put the seeds on the bark of the branch of the apple tree and you really won't see an awful lot for several months and then eventually you'll see this little green sprout emerging that then plugs itself into the bark and then after a couple of years you'll have a little baby mistletoe plant but it is slow so it requires a lot of patience. I also have another parasitic plant in my garden called ivy brimrape. So brimrapes or their scientific name is orobanchi These are examples of the hollow parasites, those that don't have any chlorophyll, and they're really, really unusual looking. The one that I have tends to grow on ivy, although I've managed to get it to grow on a tetrapanax, which is quite unusual. So just this morning, I was out in my garden and I saw this big fleshy purple shoot of ivy brimrape growing on my potted tetrapanax, so that was quite exciting. So it's very apt that we're talking about vampire plants so close to Halloween. This is a a generic and and rather fun name that has been given quite recently to parasitic plants of all descriptions. And really, it sort of describes their habit of tapping into the roots and stems of other plants and stealing their food or sap from them. So it's a little bit of fun. And I like calling these plants vampire plants as well, because it's a way of engaging people with plants who might otherwise not find plants so interesting as most of us do. So I think by finding these sort of fun, fanciful names for plants, it's a way of sort of bringing new people into the conversation. Thanks, Chris. Sticking to our theme, I thought Halloween would be the perfect time to take a look at plants that are looking slightly worse for wear. Let's hear from advisor Lee Hunt with his tips on how to bring your plants back from any near-death experiences. When a plant looks sickly, often we're wondering, is that it? Is it a horrifying situation where it's going to die on us? 
Well, there's a couple of things that we can do to actually check whether it's temporary stress or whether it's on the way out. First thing and the easiest thing is if it's a shrubby plant, find out whether it's green underneath the bark. The other good place to check is the roots. Obviously, roots supply the water to the leaves. So if there's a problem with the roots, often the foliage shows the symptoms, but it can be a root problem. Go right in at the base and just pull back some of the soils. Sometimes a little trowel is quite helpful just to scrape back the soil surface because you're looking at this case for the finer roots. Those finer roots, well, they should be firm. Often they'll have a bit of a bark around them, but inside they'll be creamy white if they're healthy. If you're finding that those finer roots are softened, brown or black, then that can indicate either root death or indeed root disease has caused death. So black's never a very good healthy sign in most plants and unfortunately that's one to check for. If the roots are healthy though, your plant still stands a chance. Now working out whether it's on the brink, i.e. are the roots alive or are they looking rather dead, is a key thing because if they're looking dead, not really going to be much chance of saving that plant unfortunately but if the roots look healthy enough then that plant does stand a good chance of surviving so then we're looking at why is that plant not looking as healthy as it should be at that point we start to consider all the standard things that might have happened to it key thing of course is water if that plant has got very dry at some point the roots still will be looking okay but the leaves will have sagged and you'll start to get leaf loss as well. The leaf loss is usually in the centre of the plant and the tips, which are obviously the bit that's going to grow so the plant looks after and sends most of the water and nutrients to it first, will be okay. But it's often the lower leaves that start to go yellow and fall off first. And that's a sign of water stress. Too much water is actually more dangerous than too little to some extent. So if you've had too much water, the thing that happens there is the compost sits very wet, the roots are in the compost, and they will start to go mushy and soft and rotten. Now, because those roots have literally gone mushy, they're not going to function properly. They can't send up the water up the stem to the leaves. So it might look like drought, But in fact, because we've looked at the roots, we know that it's been overwatering. Now, it's much easier to correct underwatering than overwatering. And this is particularly the case with things like houseplants, where often this can happen very easily because we have our houseplants and we sit them in a nice decorative pot. And then there's a little bit of water left in the pot and that sits for too long. At this time of year, because the plants are slowing down in their growth, the temperatures have dropped a little bit even inside, but the light levels have gone down. You can get that compost sitting much wetter for longer. And, you know, indeed, if we've got bedding plants in pots outside, this can also be a risk. Often the easiest thing to do is prevention. Often at this point, I get out my finger and push it into the compost because it's one easy way of using your finger to kind of feel literally, is it too wet or is it too dry? And what I'll be waiting for is that compost to feel just slightly dry between the fingers and then it's ready to water again. We're still going to make that compost quite damp, but then I'll allow it to go back towards dry before watering it again. 
when we have containers outside, over time, the soil that we put into them won't be quite the compost or soil that results after a year or 18 months. The reason for that is initially we'll put it in. Most potting composts contain quite a lot of organic material. Over the course of months and years, just like in a compost heap, that organic material begin to rot down. And as it does so, it'll become more dense. You might notice the surface drop as it becomes more compact. But because it's more compact, there's less room for air and therefore it becomes saturated more easily, more quickly. That saturated compost, again, is not great because it'll start to rot roots. If you're noticing that the compost is very soggy at this time of year, if you're noticing that um, the plant roots, when you start scraping again, don't look very healthy, then it can indicate that it's time for repotting. Unfortunately, autumn's not the brilliant time to repot because we like to do this when they're in active growth because we want the roots to get out into the new compost. So it might mean at this point just moving the plant pot nearer the house wall so that it doesn't get quite so much rain. But come spring, what we can do, knock it out of its pot, get a hand fork or your fingers in there and tease out a layer of the old compost between about two and five centimetres. That will create a bit of room when you put the plant back in its pot to pack some fresh compost around it, which means you're getting more air and more drainage back in. So particularly for plants that are going to be making long-term displays, it's a really useful thing. The same thing applies to houseplants that have been in their container a long time and you just don't have the room to go up to a bigger pot. Wonderful tips from Lee. If you've got living plants, sooner or later you'll have dead plants. It's an unfortunate fact of life. So hopefully with tips from Lee, you'll be able to drag them back and keep them in the land of the living. I've got a lemon that looked pretty sick. It looks pretty sick most spring. But after a summer on the patio, careful watering and feeding, it's greened up nicely. It might have got a little bit bigger. Let's hope I can keep it going till next year. It's a sort of a challenge. Luckily, gardening advisor Rebecca Mealy is here to help us work out when our plants need some serious Frankenstein-type surgery. This can be quite a confusing time of year for new gardeners because they've bought a nice new plant in spring. It's been sat there all summer doing its thing. And then come this time of year, it's starting to look very, very ropey. It can be quite disconcerting to kind of understand how they overwinter. Quite a few plants, they do this thing where they lose their leaves, they are deciduous. So this is a mechanism they have developed to cope with the cold weather. So instead of having their leaves exposed to the cold winter, they shed them and become dormant to then overwinter to come into leaf the following spring. There does come a time maybe kind of late summertime when actually the plants are looking a little bit potentially more like they're dying rather than actually going dormant so it is kind of sometimes can be quite tricky to tell the difference so with a shrub you'd be looking at the health of the actual main stems not all shrubs have a great autumn color this year we have had what's known as an early autumn and this is where we've had quite a stressful growing season. 
and plants have just really kind of they've given up they're kind of like okay i'm done i'm out leaves drop done gone gone to bed so what you're looking at is the actual health of the bark so usually if it's dying or dead it can be a little bit shriveled if you kind of bend it sometimes they snap at the top usually on a newly planted tree or shrub you will expect to get a little bit of dieback and this is fine the levels of like 25% dieback it's not great but the plant can come back from that sometimes unfortunately if the leader of the tree has died back a little bit you might have to train in a new leader but you can do that the other thing to look for is the bark peeling off the trunk and then another thing that people do is they kind of scrape back the bark a little bit with their nail and then you can see the green underneath so that should be there if the plant is just dormant and just doing its thing over winter if that's not there on a deciduous shrub then you can pretty much expect it's not looking great and it could have died. However, there are some plants that will send up new shoots from the base. So I kind of don't really ever call it on a plant until the spring. Many diseases aren't really going to move or do much over the winter. It's a case of wait till spring, see what happens, see what life is then and how it sprouts back. A lot of you herbaceous plants, the leaves tend to stay looking reasonable until the first couple of frosts. Do check on which plant you have, because sometimes some plants don't like to be cut back early in the autumn. I quite like leaving a lot of my plants long so that vegetation is there protecting the growth tips. And then I clear off all the rubbish in March, February time, depending on how the season's going. Because in nature, that's what would happen anyway. The plants would have that vegetative protection over the top of them and help them overwinter. With some plants, it's very much right plant, right place. Some perennials really don't like sitting in an overly wet soil over winter. So sometimes you have to kind of watch when you're planting it how big it is when you plant it as well because some perennials if they're a little bit too small sometimes you're better off having them as a bigger plant to then plant in the spring than have a smaller plant planted out in the autumn also with herbaceous perennials sometimes they're a bit they go a bit squidgy and you can tell if they've dried up but again until spring you don't really know for certain if a tree or shrub or perennial has fully died so I kind of don't really give up on anything until the end of May beginning of June if nothing's shown by that point then it's out improve the soil do a good thorough check of the plant just to see if you can figure out what actually made that plant die sometimes it's better to let an area go fallow for a little bit than plant it up too quickly especially if it has been a disease so just it's a good idea to have a, a nice stale seed bed for a bit. That's about all we've got time for this week. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information on anything you've heard in the show, head to rhs.org.uk slash podcast. Until next time, it's goodbye from me, Guy Barter. 
I'm going back to my pumpkins. I baked one last night in the oven and it's crying out to be made into pie and soup. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine, and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 